Okay, so this is our Simon Don study group. Uh, we're continuing our reading of volume two of Individuation, um, and we're on the text, the complementary note on the notion of the individual. Sorry, is that even the right title? Uh, something like that. Uh, anyway, we're on the chapter Individuation and Invention, and we're starting at section four uh, on page 426 of the translation. Uh, so last time we looked at these two attitudes to, or two relations between human beings and technical objects uh, and machines in particular, these sort of two complementary attitudes or ways of approaching the machine um, that are, are both um, errors or um, not very good ways of approaching. Uh, so the, the one is to sort of subordinate the machine to human desires uh, and treat the machine basically like a slave. Um, and so he talks about, um, uh, like exam as examples of this attitude, he, he talks about uh, um, demolition derbies um, where you just sort of treat the machine as uh, an object to be destroyed for, you, for your enjoyment. Um, and um, he, and he, yeah, he just talks in general about uses of machines for um, to satisfy human desires uh, for consumption purposes. Um, in, uh, and we can compare this also with uh, the other book on the mode of existence of technical objects, where he talks about how, um, how cars have this tendency towards um, adding new sort of uh, mechanisms that you can, you can think of, like um, power windows and um, uh, sort of like adding electronics to a car uh, and, and he thinks of this as being sort of detrimental to the actual functioning of the car as a car um, but it it sort of adds a veneer of um, a luxury or something to to the car as a, an object of consumption um, and so this attitude towards the machine uh, he thinks is um, uh, is one that uh, doesn't allow you to really grasp the machine for what it is. Uh, it it's a sort of um, propaganda uh, or um, marketing uh, version of a machine, rather than uh, the machine itself that that is given to you in this attitude. And then the other one, the the opposite attitude, is one where the human being is subordinated to the machine. Um, and so this is more um, talking about like an industrial setting, a, a factory or something along those lines um, where you have um, the worker uh, has to operate a machine uh, and their, uh, their performance is sort of tied to machine type um, metrics. So like um, your efficiency is measured by the number of uh, widgets that you produce in an hour or whatever. Um, whatever the factory is producing uh, uh, in the same way as a machine's productivity is measured. So like the, the human being is measured by a machine standard effectively. Uh, and then if it's possible to um, buy a new machine that um, replaces the worker then uh, and, and produces, you know, at least as many widgets or produces widgets for cheaper than than the human does, then um, then that uh, replacement will be carried out, and and so um, 
there's a, a sort of subordination to the uh, of the human being to the machine in that setting. Uh, and then he also talks about, or another example of this attitude is um, uh, a sort of uh, formulaic communication where instead of formulating a message, um, uh, a, a sort of unique message to express something to to the person you're communicating with, you select from a, a predefined set of messages. Uh, so he's thinking of like telegrams or something along those lines where you have um, sort of a, a, a stock set of formulas that you can choose from. And so you just need to select, you know, formula number seven uh, and then fill in your name and, and, and then they just send off the message and it's already sort of pre-formulated. Um, and um, the more sort of contemporary example that I talked about last time was in um, certain email systems like Gmail does this and I think Outlook too. Um, you, if you receive an email, it gives you like pre-filled um, replies. Like it, it, it sort of figures out what you might want to say in response to uh, to an email that you receive. Uh, and and so um, for Simon Don, this type of sort of pre pre-formulated communication or um, stock uh, stock formula communication. Um, it has this risk of excluding someone who doesn't uh, sort of fit into a, a pre-made template or anyone who is not typical in whatever way is, is sort of um, uh, excluded from the possibility of communicating properly. So it, it sort of forces everyone into um, uh, a certain number of uh, molds or patterns. Uh, and then anyone who doesn't fit that mold is sort of uh, stuck with trying to find one formula that is maybe close enough to what they want to express. Uh, and, and so these, these are two sort of opposite attitudes to, uh, to the machine or, or um, two different uh, expressions of the relationship between a human being and a machine. Um, that, uh, and neither one is a, a sort of, um, what he calls a, a noble relation between the human being and the machine. Um, and so this noble relation between a human being and a machine is one in which um, both the human being and the machine are uh, uh, capable of uh, being fully realized in the uh, in that relationship. Uh, so rather than sort of taking a machine, uh, something that's already uh, constituted and, and given, and then the human being is something given and then subordinating one to the other. There's this relationship of double gen uh, double genesis or a doubly genetic relationship where the two uh, terms are, are um, mutually constituted by the relationship. So uh, the technical object and the human uh, both constitute each other in that relation. And his example of this type of relationship is... Uh, in uh, scientific research, the use of technical objects in scientific research, and so here it's not um, it's not a, a sort of um, face to face relationship of the human being and a machine. Uh, it's it's a um, it's a relationship between a human being and some aspect of nature, some uh, hidden aspect of nature uh, by means of a machine. Uh, so the machine sort of stands in the middle of the uh, diagram if you want to sort of draw this out uh, rather than being uh, 
opposed to the the human being. Uh, so the human being uh, is capable of acting on some uh, object, some aspect of nature um, by means of the machine. And then conversely, the object uh, sort of um, sends signals or uh, can can be uh, um, can be the source of information for the human being uh, by means of the machine. Again, so you can think of machines like uh, an electron microscope or a radio telescope or something, uh, these um, scientific instruments that allow for perception of something that human beings can't perceive with, uh, with our um, uh, just uh, uh, native um, perceptual equipment. Um, and so this relationship where uh, rather than having that sort of face-to-face -face of the human opposed to the machine, you have the human uh, um, coming into contact with some aspect of nature uh, mediated by the machine. Uh, this is what he calls, a, or this is for him, the, the sort of prime example of uh, this noble relationship between the human and the machine. Uh, and so we're, we're going to... Um, um, I think continue on on that theme today, um, and then or one one last point of um, uh, recap before we start on the next bit uh, is he he talks about the the difficulty of sort of escaping these two um, these two attitudes to the machine, uh, and in particular how um, there's a sort of um, vicious circle involved in the um, commercial or, or consumer um, attitude to the machine in a sense that the, uh, uh, the machine that is produced for a consumer uh, is, a, is a machine that the consumer um, has no understanding of uh, as a technical object. The consumer only understands the machine as an object of consumption. And so the, the uh, producers of those machines are their interests um, or their motivation is always going to be to produce uh, a machine that um, fits with the uh, consumption habits of the consumers rather than uh, to develop a machine that um, that is a, a real technical advance on the existing machines. And so the, the producers of machines will use um, commercial propaganda or marketing to try to sell their machines to the consumers and they'll appeal to the consumption habits of those consumers. And then the consumers um, have only, the only machines that they have available to them are the ones that are designed for those consumption habits. So it, there's this sort of vicious circle where each side, both the producers and the consumers are sort of locked into this um, model of the machine as an object of consumption and uh it's it's he doesn't really give us um i think a very uh fleshed out um explanation of how to break out of this cycle but he he's what he's calling for here and and um similarly in on the mode of existence of technical objects is the development of a technical culture so um a cultivation of an understanding of technical objects as such and not as objects of consumption. Uh, and he um, seems to think that this uh, technical culture would allow for people to sort of break out of that uh, vicious circle um, 
uh, and I think that's maybe um, a bit questionable whether that's uh, sufficient, um, but um, that's his sort of uh, solution to this vicious circle is the development of a technical culture. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's begin with the next section. Um, so I'll read the first page or so. Um, so again, we're starting from page 426 at uh, section four. Allegmatic nature of the individuated technical object. An attitude that would consist in considering that the machine can be grasped and known veritably as a crystallized human activity would overlook the very nature of the, this attitude would conflate the machine with a work of art. The identification of the machine with man or man with the machine cannot take place unless relation is exhausted in the link between man and machine. But if relation is really in three terms, the mediating term remains distinct from the extreme term. The absence of the object term is what creates the possibility for the domination of man over the true essence of the machine is to establish this communication, then the machine must be defined in terms of information and not according to a practical use in order to be able to analyze it. Indeed, identical types of machines can be employed in extremely different industries and for extremely different practical. Every technology that would begin with a principle of classification according, originating with industries or professions would end up in a certain failure in the attempt to seek to constitute a true technological culture. The machine does not allow itself to be known through its incorporation into a professional community. The technical being can only be defined in terms of information and the transformation of different types of energy, i.e. on the one hand as a vehicle of an action that goes from man to the universe, and on the other hand as a vehicle of information that goes from the universe. Cultural technology becomes a mixture of energetics and information. Cybernetics, which is a theory mainly inspired by considerations based on the functioning would be one of the foundations of technology if it did not initially privilege a mixture of action and information called feedback or action in return, recurrent causality. A, a machine can indeed exist without contributing any relation between the, the chain of causality conveying the information and the chain of causality conveying the, uh, sorry, between the chain of causality conveying the action and the chain of causality. When the machine provides such a link, it contains an automatism. But there are machines that are not automatons and that are, at the very least, do not convey automatisms except through secondary or temporary and occasional functions. For example, those that guarantee security, servo mechanism. The notion of reaction, which is already a synthetic notion, is extremely useful, but is not an original. It only takes on its meaning in a more general theory of transformations, which can be called general allegmatic. The machine is an allegmatic being. However, a pragmatistic theory that is preoccupied with action sees nothing in the machine but the motor role directed by man and acting on the recurrence of the information through which the machine brings forth messages from the world to the individual is naturally and functionally considered subordinate to the motor role. Nevertheless, feedback does not account for the informative role of every machine in the sense that information can be anterior to the action of the individual. There's no necessary anteriority of this action over information. By considering information as the signal of the, the discrepancy between the result of action and the goal of action, cybernetics runs the risk of underestimating the role of direct information, which is not inserted in the recurrence of feedback and does not require an active initiative of the individual. Unlike recurrent information, this direct information does not include a reference to the action of the subject and therefore is not evaluated as a mark of failure or success. When feedback information arrives, it is inserted as a form into this ground of non-recurrent information such that the individual is in the presence of two information broad and permanent information which inserts it into the narrow and temporary, even instantaneous information that is mainly linked to action, is just as variable as action and is always renewed by action. This recurrent type of information does not include as much richness as the preceding type, but is defined on the contrary by several concrete but very simple signals. 
color, form, attitude, which due to their paltry richness and in information can easily be replaced or rapidly modified without the requirement of a large expenditure of nervous energy in the operator or a very complex transformation in the machine. Right, so here he's, um, he's uh, sort of introducing his notion of um, allegmatics, which would be the general science of transformations of, uh, uh, of structure into, um, uh, sorry, structure into information and information into structure, um, if I remember his definition correctly. Um, and he sees this science as being a sort of generalization of cybernetics. Um, so he thinks cybernetics is too restrained. It, it sort of artificially restricts its subject matter to um, the, the field of machines that function using feedback mechanism. Uh, and, and so what's characteristic of a feedback mechanism um, is this idea of um, a sort of um, elimination of difference between the, uh, the result of an action and the goal of the action. So you have like um, a machine that uh, like some of the sort of simple um, goal-directed machines that, that the early cyberneticists developed. Um, I think it was W. Gray Walter who came up with his little uh, artificial turtles or whatever um, that um, uh, they can orient towards the light. So you effectively just have a, a light sensor um, and then you have um, a motor that can turn the, um, the, the machine uh, and then you have uh, some sort of signal of a discrepancy between um, the initial um, state of illumination on the light sensor and the uh, state of the illumination after the motion. And so you can just have a, a relatively simple um, uh, mechanism that allows for um, uh, a measure of discrepancy between the uh, state, the current state after an action and the goal state, um, which is a, a state of illumination on the light sensor. And, and so if it detects this discrepancy, it will move uh, in a certain direction. Uh, and if, uh, if the discrepancy is diminished after the movement, then it will continue moving in that direction. Or if it, the discrepancy increases uh, after the action, it will um, move in the other direction. Uh, and so this very simple mechanism will allow for um, goal-directed or um, seemingly goal-directed behavior in the sense that the machine as a whole will orient towards, uh, towards light sources. Um, and so this, this type of uh, feedback mechanism where um, uh, some sort of discrepancy uh, serves as um, an input to an action and then uh, is also the output of uh, a new cycle of that action um, is, is sort of the, the characteristic uh, structure or functioning that cyberneticists studied uh, in the early days of cybernetics. Um, but um, for Simon Don, this is only sort of one, one possible um, one one possible picture of the functioning of uh, uh, information and structure uh, in in their interaction. Um, so he's going to elaborate a, a more general theory, uh, or at least sketch out the outlines of a more general theory of um, how information 
uh, and structure interacts in a more general sense, in, in a more general sense than in cybernetics feedback mechanism. And here he's going to draw on um, Gestalt psychology with its notion of the form uh, and uh, the figure ground distinction. So we'll, we'll continue to see that throughout the rest of today. Okay, so let's go on to the next page or so, if someone else would like to read. I can read. We're at the difference between, right? Yes. The difference between these two types of information becomes extremely palpable when one is forced to translate both into a single form that allows for their comparison. The difference between the two roles is then expressed as a considerable difference between the quantities of information. Thus, the indications that an airplane pilot receives from an altimeter only has value as feedback that allows the, the pilot to regulate his descent or ascent according to the indications of the needle on the dial. Um, these indications are inserted as the form into a ground that is the overall and synthetic vision of the flown over region and also of the state of the atmosphere or of the cloud ceiling. This feedback must be all the more precise as the practical consequences of the motor activity are important. For example, the simple altimeter of high altitudes cannot serve to evaluate the distance of the airplane relative to the runway at the moment of landing. One then, one then employs a device that emits electromagnetic waves that reflect off the ground in return with a certain delay, which is evaluated due to the variation of the emission frequency with which the frequency of the reflected wave can interact. The signal is constituted by this interaction. In this first case, whatever the technical system employed may be, the principle is always the same. To grasp a variable parameter according to the results of the individual's action and to return to the subject the signal that indicates the result of this action with respect to a term of fixed reference that is part of this goal. The signal can then be presented to the subject according to a simple intensive or extensive scale corresponding to an oriented axis on which one point or line represents the goal and another point or line represents the result of the action. This information can be represented by the displacement of a needle across a dial. Conversely, if it is a question of transmitting information relative to the ground and not to the form, no procedure of information capable of inscription on a bipolar linear scale can succeed. The simultaneity of a multiplicity is necessary, and the individual is the center that integrates this multiplicity. All the procedures head toward the necessity to decompose the totality of the simple elements transmitted in isolation. Whether this isolation of the singularity is realized by a multitude of simultaneous and independent transmissions, as in the first television apparatuses, or by the, the distribution in a cycle that guarantees a synchronism at the beginning, end, since each element has its own instant in the cycle, supposing that information is invariable during the cycle. As in this case, it is not the machine that plays the role of integrator, but the subject. The necessity of bringing to the subject various grounds and not forms translates into a requirement for an enormous quantity of information to be conveyed. This enormous quantity of information to be collected and transmitted without being integrated is what limits the finesse of electromagnetic detection via radar, which poses serious problems for the transmission of moving images and television by requiring it to adopt very elevated video frequencies that increase exponentially as the definition of the image increases. The quantity of information necessary for transmission can only be reduced due to a coding of the world to be perceived. A coding known to the subject, coding that corresponds to a recourse to a perception of forms on a ground that is already known and no longer needs to be transmitted. In this sense, it is possible to replace observation of the terrain and the countryside traveled over by plane with a map on which the pilot marks his position 
by means of the phase relations between the signals coming from the three triangulated stations of electromagnetic transmission, as in the DECA piloting system, Shoran, or currently via radio beacons. Here, the pilot carries with him an analog of the phone over countryside, the map, and due to a formalization of the world known and adopted by way of convention, construction of three emitters and the apparatus of synchronization that links them together, the pilot realizes on the map a much simpler integration since he operates on elements that are already abstract. Here, there are two concentric integrations, an initial fundamental integration of the map of the world due to which the map can have a signification and a second integration of received signals to the map that has been brought on board, which is simpler because the information is already selected by the passage from the concrete world to the map and from the multiple visual signals to the three hertzian waves in a phase rapport. Here, the labor takes place in an image, the map, and symbols, the signals coming from the synchronized emitters. This is imbued with value due to a double localization one through which the map is recognized as an image of a certain region by the pilot, and the other through which the pylons of the three synchronized emitters have been constructed via a certain spot of geographical territory, and not some other spot. The sources of symbols are localized in the image, and this image establishes a coherence without which the piloting, without which piloting would be impossible. Right, so here we have um, the contrast between these two, um, two different modes of... Uh of transmitting information or of um, uh, representing information. Uh, so the one, the uh, the simpler one, is where um, you just have a feedback mechanism. Uh, and so the altimeter on an airplane is the uh, an easy example of this, where there's a, a dial that shows how far you are from the ground. Um, and uh, the pilot um, can increase or decrease the altitude and then look at the altimeter and see um, see the results of the action. Uh, and so if you're operating a maneuver like uh, landing or something, um, you uh, uh, look at the altimeter and you act in such a way that the altimeter uh, continues to show a decrease in altitude uh, until you are uh, close enough to the, um, the runway that you have to um, switch to another system um, because the altimeter has a limited accuracy. Um, and, and so this other system, uh, again, in, in the example of an airplane, he talks about um, the use of um, this. He doesn't use the word radar here, but I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about. When the uh, emission of an electromagnetic wave uh, that reflects off the surface and uh, you... Uh, the device um, measures the the variation in the frequency based on the reflection of different surfaces, uh, and so is able to calculate the distance um, from from the surface. Um, um, but that, again, that the radar system is a uh, is effectively just a feedback mechanism. Uh, it's, it's just a, a a feedback mechanism that has a greater accuracy than the altimeter. Um, but then the other um, mode of information has to do not with the figure um, or the form, but with the ground. So if, if you want to transmit uh, not just one signal that um, operates as the uh, signal for a feedback mechanism, but if you want to transmit uh, like a whole scene or uh, something more structured, then 
it, you have to um, you have to transmit uh, a much higher quantity of information, uh, and and so the example that he uses here is um, uh, a television uh, a television set. Um, so if you want to transmit a moving image uh, um, or like I don't know a picture of a, a bicycle, uh, someone riding a bicycle, for example, um, if if you want to transmit a, a video uh, of this motion, you have to transmit um, uh, a signal that captures both the foreground and the background um, many times per second uh, in order to um, uh, give the appearance on the uh, in in the human observer of motion. Um, and uh, right, so this this uh, type of transmission, this type of information, um, operates a certain uh, requires the the human observer to operate a, a, a kind of integration of information. So, uh, like on a television, uh, the the older style television, it had a, a sort of scanning uh, of the image. Um, so it uh, instead of transmitting the whole image across the whole screen uh, every uh, cycle, it would instead scan from the top to the bottom uh, multiple times per second and and sort of update the each line on the screen um, uh, multiple times per second. Um, and it's only the human observer who, uh, looking at the the television, uh, will see the the bicycle or whatever other object is is shown on the screen. Uh, and really, in terms of the uh, sort of uh, purely technical transmission of information, there's no um, structure of a, a bicycle. It, it's only the human observer who sees the bicycle um, separated from the background and uh, uh, integrates the whole image into one uh, perception. Uh, and then he talks about um, sort of ways of getting around the um, transmission of information, like the, the high uh, quantity of information that has to be transmitted if you want to transmit both figure and ground. Uh, and so one sort of uh, one way of getting around this is um, a sort of coding where you um, you require the subject, the, the observer, to have a, a sort of frame of reference that is shared with the transmitter uh, and so, like in the case of um, the pilot, uh, he talks about these systems where you have um, navigation by means of of triangulation of uh, the plane's location. Um, so the the pilot has to have a, a map, um, either like on paper or nowadays it would be in a computer. Um, the pilot has a, a map uh, on the plane, uh, and then the the signals that are received from the radio towers um, uh, allow for the pilot to triangulate the position of the plane uh, in relation to those towers and then to uh, uh, to assign that position to a point on the map. Uh, and um, so effectively the the background uh, or the the ground um, aspect of the uh, situation is is, um, rather than being transmitted over the radio signal is shared uh, at the outset. So it's only in in this sort of complete system that contains both the human observer uh, and the map that 
this radio signal actually conveys information about the location of the plane. If you just um, are sort of sitting in a, I don't know, in a, a cabin with your radio receiver and you receive these signals, it doesn't really tell you anything. Um, it's only in in conjunction with the um, the background uh, reference to the the map that you can actually use this signal to orient yourself. Um, right. So this uh, this is the a more um, sort of sophisticated version of uh, or this is a more sophisticated form of uh, of, of transformation of information than uh, a pure feedback mechanism. Uh, because it it requires this background um, uh, understanding and relationship between the position of the plane in the sky uh, relative to the ground and the position of a dot on a map. You have to have a, um, a sort of a grasp of the relationship between these two aspects of the situation uh, in order to to integrate the information coming from the uh, radio tower. This is a really naive question. So, but but is this the so this is the more fulsome definition of information that he that he's talked about in the past, like the difference between traditional cybernetic information and and his his more allegmatic understanding of information is is the sort of rolling together both form and ground in this way. Um, I think he's so in in previous passages he's talked about a contrast between um, information. Uh, in the the sort of proper sense of the term, his his sense of the term, and signals of information, um, and and so he he generally treats signals of information as um, uh, as uh, the the sort of quantitative measure of information from communication theory, um, and so here he's I think he's still talking about um, a certain uh, signal of information. Um, so it's not it's not information in the sort of proper sense of the term, uh, which has to do with um, the the formation of structure out of uh, a previously unstructured domain. Um, here he's talking about a signal of information, but it's um, like a more sophisticated um, a more sophisticated use of that information um, than cybernetics is capable of of uh, accounting for. So I think it's still um, I think it's still a, a kind of signal of information, but it's a uh, um, that that signal is always uh, like he's he's talked about this in other passages where um, uh, a signal of information is only ever uh, effective at at conveying information if the receiver is capable of incorporating it into its functioning in some in some way. Um, so, so it's still kind of because it's still relying on established conventions between sender and receiver is partly the answer. Yeah. So like even something sim uh, simple like a, a telegram, uh, you have to rely on Morse code to um, or some other coding mechanism to you know turn a a, a train of uh, uh, electrical pulses into um, a message that is that has a, a meaning of some kind, um, uh, and. Uh, Likewise, like even just at the at the sort of basic technical level, the receiver of a, a telegraphic message has to be able to detect the difference between um, uh, an on state and an off state. Like there has to be enough variation in the receiver to be able to um, receive the difference between a, an on state and an off state. And and then 
you have to be able to distinguish between a, a short on state and a, a long on state. Um, and uh, right, so in general, the receiver has to have a certain structure and be capable of a certain functioning to be able to receive a signal of information. And and here he's he's talking about um, the uh, this more sophisticated reception of information, which has to do not just with the 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 figure aspect, but with the ground aspect at the same time. Uh, and and so um, it's it's still a, a signal of information, but it's just a more sophisticated use of it. That's great. Thanks. Um, yeah, and we'll see. I think uh, later in this reading about like what the this difference entails like what's the significance of this difference um but um we can already see that um if we uh if we think back to um the previous discussion of some of the limitations of the machine uh in comparison to a human subject um the uh the machine is capable of operating by a feedback mechanism and uh uh, eliminating a discrepancy or, or reducing a discrepancy um, uh, progressively through cycles of action. Um, but what a machine, uh, it, for Simon Don, what a machine is not capable of doing is um, having this figure ground relationship and uh, um, integrating the information across multiple uh, multiple domains and and creating this sort of integrated perception. Um, and, and I think it's an, an interesting question to what extent this is still true today. Um, of course, we have much more sophisticated machines now than uh, in 1958 or whenever he was writing this. Um, um, but I think there's, to some extent, at least, there's still a sense in which um, uh, those more sophisticated machines work through uh, transmission of uh, simple signals uh, and there's still a reliance on a human subject as the integrator of uh of the information um so like you can think of um uh sorry i was, I was going to talk about um airplanes again um because in in airplanes um most of the flying is actually done automatically these days like uh, it's the autopilot that does most of the flying um but they still use um like the human, it still has to be involved in the takeoff and landing portions of the uh, of the flight, um, and I'm not sure to what extent that's due to technical limitations or or like legal and insurance reasons and things like that. I I, I don't know um, what the sort of mix is uh, with with that situation, but um, the idea uh, like. It, we're still a long way away from having like a purely automated plane where you wouldn't even have a pilot on board. Um, and I think the idea is that the the autopilot is capable of handling situations that are routine or that are similar to um, other situations that it was trained on, for example. Um, but then if there's a, a new situation or uh, like, I don't know, one of the engines fails or um, something, uh, unforeseen happens uh it's it, in that situation the human subject has the capacity to integrate the new information about you know the failed engine or or the atmospheric conditions or whatever new information arrives um the human subject can integrate that information and um come up with a way of uh safely landing the plane for example uh 
and uh, in general, this is not something that uh, even uh, advanced uh, computer systems that we have on planes today are, are capable of doing. They might have sort of preset um, repertoires of uh, what to do if one engine fails or something, but um, there's there's all going to be situations that they're not um, set for that they they haven't prepared for. Um, and uh, and so it's that more sophisticated incorporation and integration of uh, information from multiple channels and uh, uh, being able to uh, integrate that information into a, a, a sort of picture with a, a figure in ground um, distinction in it. Uh, that's the the capacity that for Simon Don uh, characterizes the human subject as opposed to a uh, Okay, so let's go on uh, from page 430, the presence of the world, if someone else would like to read. Yeah, I can go. Uh, the presence of the world is therefore never eliminated by the utilization of the machine, but the relation to the world can be fractioned and mediated by several stages of symbol symbolization, each of which corresponds to a technical construction. These stages distribute valid points of reference across the world according to a perception mediated by the machine. This perception is not much more automatic than direct perception via the sensory organs, but it corresponds to an integration through stages and is specialized to a certain extent according to each type of activity. But the concrete, even if it is fractioned, remains the concrete. The relation of the ground and the form is inalienable. Pure artificiality would lead to the conflation of the ground and the form, such that the individual would find itself facing a simplified world where there would be neither universe nor object. The perception of the individual totally integrated into the community is to some extent an abstract simulated perception. Instead of extracting the object from the world, it cuts up the world according to categories that correspond to the classifications of the community, and it establishes bonds of affective participation between beings according to these communal categories. Only a profound technological education at the level of the individual can release the individual from the confusionism of stereotyped communal perception. An image is not a stereotype. The values implicated in the relation of the individual to the machine have given rise to so many confusions because the recent development of machines and of their utilization by communities has modified the rapport of the individual to the community. This relation, which used to be direct, now passes through the machine, and mechanism is sometimes somewhat limited. Sorry, and mechanism is somewhat linked to communitarianism. The notion of labor is no longer a directly communal value since the passage from human effort through a mechanical organization affects the work of a coefficient relative to this labor. Productivity. A, moral, a morality of productivity is about to take shape that will be a new type of communal morality. Individual effort is not intrinsically imbued with value. It also must be rendered effective by way of an extrinsic grace that is embodied in the notion of productivity. This notion has a certain invasive power and is widely deployed beyond commercial or industrial operations. It affects every educational system, every effort, and every labor. A certain communal resurgence of, pragmat of pragmatism confers on ethics a new type of heteronomy concealed under the guises of a desire for rationality or concrete preoccupations. When an idea or an act are rejected because they are judged inefficient and lacking in productivity, this is because they actually represent a creative individual initiative and because the community rises up with perpetual uh, mis 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 instinct against everything that is singular. 
Mizanism targets the new, but above all, it targets what is singular and therefore individual in what the new presents. The new, insofar as it is collective, has citizenship in the form of the mode. It is even found to be in a productivity is the imprint of collective subjectivity and manifests the grace that the community affords or refuses individual creation. It is not because the civilization loves money that it becomes attached to productivity, but because it is first a civilization of productivity that it becomes a civilization of money when certain circumstances turn this mode of exchange into the concrete criterion of productivity. Right, so here he's... Um... So to start with, he, he um, argues that this perception um, that integrates information coming from multiple sources uh, and, and uses uh, symbolization um, to, to incorporate that information into this bigger ground relationship is, um, is concrete in a, in a sense that um, the, the, um, the other form of information transmission through uh, uh, the information that is contained in a feedback mechanism is not concrete. Um, so there's um, the perception of the pilot who receives the signal from the radio tower um, is, is a sort of extension of um, regular perception through our eyes and ears and so on. It's, um, it's concrete in, in that sense, um, whereas the perception of the pilot um, who just looks at the altimeter is a, a sort of abstraction. It um, it's it's just one quantity extracted from the situation rather than a um, a sort of depiction of the situation as a whole. Um, and he he argues that this type of um, abstraction or artificiality uh, is um, particular to or is characteristic of a community. Uh, in in the sense that he uses the term here, uh, in contrast with a society, so a community again is the um, sort of closed collective um, that integrates each uh, member of that community as a um, as a someone who is assigned a particular role, <clears throat> a particular role, um, and uh, whereas a society is a, a an open um, uh, an open collective that um, has this openness to the world and to transformation. Uh, and so a, a community um, has this uh, artificiality to it uh, or um, um, something that would have, uh, um, uh, if, if you could have sort of sit, picture a situation in which the subject had only this artificial perception of the world, only received feedback signals, then it would be uh, a sort of um, uh, a pure a pure community um, being of that subject. So they would only ever interact with the world by means of feedback signals um, that have a sort of preset um, correspondence to particular actions. Uh, and so there would be no way of... Uh, uh, sort of transforming that uh, community, it would just be a, a pure um, response to particular environmental conditions, and then the uh, there would be some sort of action that um, brings about a, a a change and a, an approximation to a goal state. Um, but the the actual operation of that uh, feedback mechanism would be fixed, uh, and and this is. Um, 
this is sort of like a, a a thought experiment or something that can't actually be realized because in reality every collective is both a community and a society a society um and this purely abstract perception that would only um that would only perceive through feedback signals is uh is not really uh, a possible mechanism uh or not really a possible um uh mode of perception so in reality we have both uh, feedback mechanisms and um, uh, these more concrete perceptual situations operating at the same time. Uh, and um, what, uh, what this more concrete um, perceptual grasp of a situation allows is for uh, the transformation of the, uh, of the situation in which the subject finds itself. So um, like again, if we if we go back to our uh, pilot on on an airplane, um, the pilot has a, a a grasp of the whole situation and can can um, can make decisions based on uh, integrating information from a variety of sources. Uh, and uh, whereas the autopilot just sort of does what it's set to do. Um, even if it has, you know, more sophisticated mechanisms that allow for um, modifications based on environmental conditions uh, of some kind, um, the pilot still has this integrative capacity that the autopilot doesn't have. Uh, and for Simon Don, this integrative capacity is um, especially, um, especially characteristic of what he calls here technical education, or what he earlier called technical culture. Um, so. Uh, it's um, this capacity to grasp uh, the the situation as a whole is required in order to grasp the functioning of a technical object. So, um, whereas the purely consumer attitude to a technical object just incorporates that technical object into a, a category that is already predefined by that community, um, whether it's like the category of a, a luxury car, for example. Um, the the actual grasp of the technical functioning of the technical object um, requires uh, this more concrete understanding that incorporates and integrates information from multiple different um, uh, inputs. Um, and then he he also talks about how um, how the um, the use of machines in uh, in a community can transform. Uh, the structure of that community in the sense that the machine comes to mediate between the members of that community. So instead of having uh, something like a relationship from one individual to another within the community, we instead have relationships that are mediated by machines. Um, like we can even think of our, uh, our reading group now as, as a, uh, a relationship that is mediated by various uh, technical systems. Um, and, and what this, or one of the effects of this type of mediation is that um, there's uh, this production or this um, generation of this value of productivity that um, wasn't necessarily there before, uh, where the individual uh, is sort of meant to, um, to, uh, to work in such a way that um, 
that there's a, a sort of um, external validation for that work. Um, whereas uh, in pre-industrial societies, you had work as um, having it, having it uh, sort of its own value. Um, you have uh, in an industrial society, you have um, work as something that uh, has to um, has to produce something uh, that has to be uh, productive in the sense of creating something uh, valuable for someone else. Uh, and you can think of this um, like um, any, like if you uh, just go on something like BuzzFeed or whatever, um, you'll, you'll see like lists of how to, um, how to monetize your, your, um, uh, your, in your hobbies or whatever um how to turn your hobbies into a side hustle and uh so the the idea that you could just sort of enjoy something and do it for its own sake uh seems to be sort of antithetical to this productivity um uh this norm of productivity so you always have to whatever you're doing whether it's education or um your hobbies or uh whatever activity that you're doing has to be productive uh in some sense it has to produce something uh and and so this um this is um a sort of uh, a result of this uh mediation of the community by the machine so because uh the machine is is incorporated into the community as something that mediates between individuals the individuals are subordinated to this norm of productivity uh there's one uh translation point here that i think there's a, a mistake checking the French. Yeah, yeah. So where he says um, in the translation on page 431, um, he says the new insofar as it is collective has citizenship in the form of the mode. Um, the mode should be translated as fashion. It's uh, it should be has citizen citizenship in the form of fashion. Um, so the idea here is that um, in uh, in a society or sorry, in a, a community rather, where um, where there's this integration of the machine or the technical object uh, as a mediating uh, uh, a mediator between individuals, um, new technical objects are introduced as objects of of fashion. So there's a new um, new model of car that comes out every year, or um, a new iPhone or whatever um, that. Uh, uh, you have to get this new model uh, just because it's the the new model, like not because you actually need some uh, technical capacity that this new object has, but just because it's the new one. Um, and um, so, um, so this is a, a sort of um, a, a relationship with the, uh, or this is connected with the um, norm of productivity, in the sense that. Um, um something that is new in not in the sense of of fashion as something that uh is is new for consumption but something that is like a, an actual new technical operation uh is going to be rejected um because it's not productive it's not uh something that um uh that produces uh in the same way that a, a new model of car or a new phone does. Um, so, so this is sort of the, uh, 
relationship between the uh, norm of productivity and the um, the new model of of technical object as a as a fashion. Okay, so let's go on to um, the last bit of this uh, chapter. Um, from nevertheless, despite appearances, if uh, someone would like to read. Yeah, I can read. Nevertheless, despite appearances, a civilization of productivity, regardless of the apparent civil liberties that it leaves to individuals, is extremely restricted for them and prevents their development since it simultaneously enslaves man and machine. It realizes through the machine a restrictive communal integration. Under the influence of a humanist preoccupation, man must not revolt against the machine. Man is only enslaved to the machine when the machine itself is already enslaved by the community. And since there is an internal coherence of the world of technical objects, humanism must seek to free this world of technical objects, which are called upon to become the mediators of man's relation to the world. Until now, humanism has hardly been able to incorporate the relation of humanity to the world. This will that defines humanism, i.e. the will to give back to the human being everything that the various paths of alienation have deprived him of by decentering him, will remain powerless insofar as it will have not understood that the relation of man to the world and of the individual to the community passes through the machine. The old humanism remained abstract because it defined self-control only for the citizen and not for the slave. Modern humanism remains an abstract doctrine when it believes to save the human from all alienation by believing to struggle against the machine, which dehumanizes. It struggles against the community by believing to struggle against the machine, but it cannot manage any legitimate result because it accuses the machine of what the machine is not responsible for. By deploying itself in total mythology, this doctrine deprives itself of the strongest and most stable ally that will give humanism a dimension, signification, and opening that in a what? By deploying itself in total mythology, this doctrine deprives itself of the strongest and most stable ally that would give humanism a dimension, signification, an opening that no negative critique could ever offer it. According to the path of research presented here, it becomes possible to search for a sense of values other than in the limited interiority of the individual being, folded back onto himself in denial of the desires, tendencies, or instincts that invite him to express himself or act outside his limits, without thereby being doomed to nullify the individual facing the community, as the soci sociological discipline does. Between the community and the individual, isolated in himself, there is the machine, and this machine is open to the world. It goes beyond communal reality to establish relation with nature. Right. So here um, he comes back again to these two opposite attitudes towards the machine that human beings can take up. And he he's arguing that they are ultimately um, linked to each other, that um, he says um, man is only enslaved by enslaved to the machine when the machine itself is already enslaved to the community. Um, so this um, this operation by which the machine uh, comes to uh, dominate over the human being is just a result of the um, domination of the community over the machine. Uh, and uh, so these, these two attitudes are, are linked to each other and uh, rather than being sort of independent um, possible errors that you can fall into. Uh, and so this, um, uh, what he's calling for here is um, uh, what he calls a humanism. Um, and he, he talks about this more in on the mode of existence of technical objects, um, where he, he thinks that 
humanism has uh, um, has sort of fallen behind the times in terms of technical progress that it it, uh, uh, it, it sort of has recourse to classical uh, models uh, for for uh, culture like you, to be a cultivated person you have to know Greek mythology and uh, uh, and, and Roman architecture or whatever um, you have to have this sort of um, you have to know uh, you have to have this familiarity with classical civilization but it uh, culture um, doesn't doesn't uh, require this familiarity with our present day technical environments um, and uh, he thinks that uh, a true humanism for that that would be sort of adequate to contemporary uh, social concerns would have to be one that incorporates the technical object uh, as something human um, in the sense that um, the technical object uh, is the result of an invention of a creative process uh, and puts the human being in, in contact with some property or, or um, aspect of nature. Uh, and, and so uh, a humanism that doesn't um, deal with the technical object that, that that sort of considers the technical object as uh, something dehumanizing um, is is limited to uh, a, just a sort of negative criticism of uh, the existing society so you can say that uh, society is alienating or or whatever you can make criticisms of the, the, the social organization uh, of our, co our collective but um, you you are limited to that sort of critical action as opposed to having the capacity to actually transform um, the social organization. And so for him, this humanism that incorporates the technical object uh, is required to, um, to have a real capacity to act on the social arrangement in a way that would um, allow for a real transformation. And, and so that's what he's um, sort of calling for. Um, it's not something that he sort of is capable of realizing um, on his own, uh, but in, uh, in the other book, in On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, there's a real, um, uh, uh, an attempt to sort of lay the, the groundwork for that technical humanism or humanism that incorporates technical uh, technical objects into its conceptual scheme, and um, so this this text that we uh, just finished here um, sort of uh, ties together the two books. I think um, it it's uh, like as, as we saw in the the note right at the beginning. It was originally written as um, uh, to be incorporated into uh, the individuation book itself. Uh, and then for whatever reason, at the last minute, he decides to um, uh, not, not incorporate it. Um, uh, but it also um, ties in with the concern with the technical object and um, the new form of technical culture that is required by it uh, in the other book. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think this text is a, an important one to sort of tie together um, what might seem like two very different um, projects in the two books. 
Uh, so we got through that text, uh, the that section for today faster than I expected. Um, so we have um, some time. I don't know if we want to start reading the history of the notion of the individual, um, or uh, if anyone has questions about the text that we just finished or comments, um, we can talk about that one before moving on. Uh, what does everyone want to do? Yeah, sorry to maybe belabor this distinction between the like the altimeter and the map, but I, I'm not sure uh, that I really follow what he's saying. Um, I don't I don't really understand how. I guess is the difference between the altimeter and the map the the fact that the map because it isn't it isn't limited to just one signal from the environment gives the pilot a greater sort of range of possible action for readjustment um than the altimeter alone so i think the the contrast is not just is not just between the altimeter and the map it's between the altimeter on the one hand and then the whole system which consists of the map and the radio tower and the pilot who um oh okay yeah so the pilot um it's this whole system that allows for the pilot to um uh, receive the signal from the radio tower uh, and um, use the symbolism of the map and um, have this um, bigger ground uh, perception and and um, incorporate all those sources of information together and uh, depict the whole situation using a dot on the map or whatever um, whatever sort of symbolic tool you you want to use. Um, so um, so this this more um, sophisticated use of information uh, is is more sophisticated precisely because it has this background knowledge that it that allows for um, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word holistic, but a, a picture of the situation um, as a whole as opposed to one signal. Um, and uh, the consequence of that is is precisely what you you mentioned um, is this capacity to um, have a, a flexible orientation towards the environment in a way that is not present just from the feedback signal of the altimeter. Um, so the the pilot is capable of um, uh, integrating the information from the radio tower uh, and um, uh, I don't know, deciding to change their flight path or um, uh, adapting to new um, weather conditions or uh, changes to the plane or whatever of, of making adjustments in that sense um, in a way that a feedback system uh, that, that just sort of measures the, the difference between a, a present state and a goal state is not capable of, uh, of doing. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we were considering the altimeter in itself, not the altimeter pilot plane system. And so that's why the altimeter is being compared to the community. And we can see it in relation to the distinction between um, uh, consciousness versus conscience that he made in an earlier session, with, where conscience would correspond to the whole pilot plane map system because it allows for this kind of reorientation. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so when he talks about uh, consciousness versus conscience, um, he he's talking about um, um, the sort of simple relationship to some sort of 
property of the environment where, uh, so the consciousness side is that simple relationship to some sort of property of the environment, um, which is uh, uh, um, something that all living beings would would share to some extent. Um, so every living being has some sort of uh, relationship to its environment uh, such that it um, either uh, orients itself towards the light or, or runs away from the light or um, it grows in the direction of, of gravity or away from the direction of gravity or whatever. It, it has some um, desirable state or state that it seeks and some state that it avoids. Uh, and so this is just a, a sort of property of a living being and a, a, a basic property that any living being has. Um, but the, the capacity for that sort of flexible um, readjustment of, uh, of that orientation to the environment is something that only, um, only living beings that are, um, uh, have this um, more sophisticated uh, use of information um, are capable of. And, and so they, they can not just orient towards their environment in various ways, but they can um, restructure their orientation to the environment so they can decide to, uh, um, like it's as if a plant could decide to grow away from the light instead of growing towards it or something like that. Um, if, uh, if that um, opportunity arose, um, and uh, so it's that capacity to restructure the already given um, uh, set of, of uh, orientations to the environment that is characteristic of uh, consci um, sorry, conscience in Simon sense. Thank you. That makes a lot more sense. And I think we can also tie this back in with um, where he, um, in the, the chapter on psychical individuation in volume one, where he talks about individualization as like a secondary, um, like a, a new uh, process of individuation that occurs in a living being. Uh, so the living being is already an individual uh, uh, and then it undergoes a, a second order individuation process that which is what he calls individualization. Um, and uh, I think this is sort of similar, um, uh, the, the sort of, uh, processes that he's been talking about in this um, in this text are similar to that individualization in the sense that um, the uh, existing um, orientation of the being to its environment is something that comes into question. So it's it's not um, it's not just a matter of uh, um, having an adaptation to the environment. It's a matter of um, learning and uh, creating, uh, inventing a new, uh, a new way of orienting towards the environment. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a problem solving and it's a, a new individuation. Um, so maybe in the next couple minutes, I'll, um, like we can end a little bit early, but I'll just sort of set up a little bit what the reading for next week is. Um, so we have, um, um, uh, so great. So as I mentioned, uh, when we started the last text, um, the order of uh, presentation is um, um, is reversed in the translation as opposed to the um, the French texts. Uh, so the history of the notion of the individual is comes first in the French texts, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, comes second in the uh, translation. But um, the um, this text 
history of the notion of the individual is basically a history of Western philosophy from the pre-Socratics up into, um, I think Nietzsche might be the last person that he talks about, um, or anyway, it goes it goes up to the 19th century at least, or I don't think he, he goes into 20th century philosophy, but um, it's a history of, of philosophy from the, the perspective of this notion of the individual. Um, so he, he goes through different philosophical systems and uh, analyzes what the, the notion of the individual is in each of these systems. Uh, and um, so, yeah, he starts with the pre-Socratics uh, and, uh, and then he, an interesting bit about this, um, this text is that he has a separate section on Socrates as opposed to Plato, where um, um, we tend to sort of um, treat Socrates in uh, Plato's dialogues as just sort of a mouthpiece for Plato. Um, but here he he tries to um, give a, a sense of Socrates um, uh, as an individual. So like what is sort of peculiar about Socrates is that he precisely has this individual uh, individual sort of relation to um, concepts like justice or piety or whatever that the rest of the Athenian community just sort of accepts as givens. Uh, he wants to investigate for himself what is justice or what is piety. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of the dialogues um, where some of these concepts are discussed um, are what what are called aporetic dialogues, where they they end in an, an aporia. Uh, they they don't result in um, a theory of of the of justice or of whatever concept they are discussing. They, it, they end they they sort of propose theories throughout the dialogue, and then they realize that those theories have problems that are um, uh, unsolvable, and the dialogue ends with just this resolution or this. Um, uh, the end of the, the dialogue is just the um, realization that they they don't have an adequate understanding of this concept, um, and then there are other dialogues where there is uh, a developed theory, um, uh, and um, like the Timaeus maybe is like a a good example of this, where they um, uh, they talk about uh, the creation of the world. Um, the way that the demiurge um, created the world using these various mathematical principles, uh, and uh, some of these dialogues are are only really dialogues by by like in the sort of barest sense of the term because it it just um, it's just one person sort of giving their account and the other person says yes I agree or whatever like every few lines. Um, uh, so there's a uh, a significant difference in the form of some of these dialogues in terms of the ones that are um, real dialogues where people sort of um, uh, that that involve real people um, and some sort of real uh, encounter of their different positions uh, and then other dialogues that are much more um, sort of um, uh, that are only dialogues by form uh, and are much more um, sort of dogmatic in the sense that they present a doctrine uh, as opposed to um, a real confrontation of, of positions. Um, so yeah, that, that's just one sort of interesting bit of the text that we're going to read for, for next time, um, this attempt to 
really understand Socrates as a, a sort of figure as opposed to um, as opposed to just a, a mouthpiece for Plato. Uh, and then another bit that we won't get to for quite a while, um, but later in the text, there's a, a very long discussion of Rousseau. Um, uh, not sure exactly why Simondon um, thinks that, that Rousseau is so important, um, but um, one, one bit is that um, he is a sort of, is one of the first people to really write an autobiography um, in the sort of modern sense of the term. Uh, uh, and, and like there are very long, um, uh, uh, there are several different texts that he wrote that are autobiographical um, and, and quite long and very detailed. Um, and uh, so this sort of ambition of like writing your whole life and like including some uh, pretty, uh, um, some not very flattering um, incidents, uh, um, this this sort of idea of like depicting yourself as you really are um, uh, is, is a sort of new idea that with uh, with Rousseau. Um, and so, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Hi. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, uh, I saw uh, in a few um, places online uh, people who are who who reject the idea of uh, dialectics. Uh, they're often accused of uh, monologuing. Uh, does this like make a kind of a link between uh, dialectics and dialogue? Um, well, etymologically, um, so in in terms of history, the the term dialectics and and dialogue are are related. Um, like they they come from the same root. Um, so like the the um, the sort of initial um, meaning of dialectics is like the art of dialogue. Uh, so like the Socrates, the yeah, so Socrates and uh, uh, Plato's dialogues are are sort of the um, initial um, example of what dialectic means. Um, but what what is um, the sort of transformation of meaning comes about because in in some of those dialogues, um, what is or or what is sort of peculiar about several of, of Plato's dialogues is that the people, the participants in the dialogue, um, uh, their positions are transformed through the dialogue itself. So they, they start off um, saying that, you know, justice is X or, or knowledge is X or, or whatever. Um, and then over the course of the discussion and, and through the questioning of, of Socrates, they come to uh, say that, you know, knowledge is not X, it's Y or, um, or, uh, you know, justice is not X, it's, it's Z. Um, and, uh, so this, this sort of, um, transformation of, of concepts comes to be, uh, um, uh, comes to be understood as, as dialectics, especially in Hegel. Um, so Hegel understands dialectics, that meaning this like self-transformation of concepts, um, where they, uh, by sort of working out what is implied in a concept, you transform that concept into uh, a new concept, uh, and and so this is um, this, that's that's sort of the relationship between uh, this notion of dialogue and the the notion of dialectic. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because um, like we've seen a few times in uh, in reading the individuation book, um, 
where Simon Don, uh, in general, um, like or most of the time, he he criticizes dialectics for for various reasons, and he um, distinguishes what he wants to do from. Uh, he's thinking primarily of the Hegelian dialectics, um, but uh, we are, we have also seen a couple passages, or at least one passage, where he um, where he actually uh, takes on the term dialectics for his own uh, position. Um, and, uh, um, so I, I think that would be an interesting question looking at, um, looking at this text on, uh, the history of the notion of the individual and his discussion of, of the platonic dialogues and sort of trying to tie that together with his, um, his understanding of dialectics. Uh, yeah, so that, that would be an interesting, um, project, uh, but I don't know what the, what the result of that would be. Okay, um, so I think unless there are any other uh, questions or comments, I think we can probably end here for today and then uh, we'll pick up from the history of the notion of the individual next time. Uh, thanks, everyone, um, and I hope to see you all next week.